Well, hello, everybody out there in the Searching the Sacred community. Let me just remind you that if you are not a patron of this podcast, we would love to invite you to be a patron of Searching the Sacred by going to patreon.com and you can search Searching the Sacred and you can find us there. And for a dollar a month or more, you can become a patron of this podcast. So for all you patrons out there, we are so grateful for your support. It helps us continue the work, helps 40 Orchards continue the dynamic work that they do. And so even though I am not Steph or Lisa on behalf of them, let me say thank you for all the support. So we are in the middle of a series, or this is week two's episode two of a series that we haven't really settled on a name yet, but it's something about sassy or spicy Jesus. Because there are moments in the Bible, there's moments in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where Jesus doesn't come across as calm or as chill or as beautific um, as we might assume him to be. Yes, that was a big word, beautific. I don't even know if it's a real word, but I'm a doctor, so I can make up words. So, the one that we're going to look at today is when Jesus is saying some harsh things to some religious leaders because they are not operating with forgiveness. And so Jesus is going to talk a little bit about fruit, and then he's going to call him call them a very interesting phrase, which we are going to unpack in a moment. So without further ado, let's turn to Matthew chapter 12, verse 33, and Lisa's going to take over from there. Thanks, Dr. Stefan Hagen. <laughs> um, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that every idle word men speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Okay. Such feel-good passages in this series. Welcome Don't to we Lent. feel ooey-gooey and, and want to just hug Jesus. So great. Well, you probably do if you're if you don't like who Jesus is talking to, <laughs> right? It depends on if he's talking to you. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things I want to start with is I was curious what translation you were going to use and how it would what it would do with this word. So your translation said um, "brood of vipers." My translation says "generation of vipers." Mm-hmm. Um, and the the Greek word is, I think, more closely two generations. It's "genema." Um, which is about, um, it's also a word used for the fruits of the earth, the produce of agriculture, offspring. It's, that reads different to me than brood of vipers when I think about generation and when I think about kind of the context of what Jesus is saying here. So I I just kind of wanted to say that first and wonder right off the bat if that word change affects how we hear what's going on. I think it's important because one thing that gets lost in Christian history, especially, and I'm saying that very specifically Christian history, is Christianity has a very negative view of the Pharisees because almost every single story that they are mentioned, they're doing something that Jesus is against or that Jesus is combating or that it's being pointed out how they're hurting the people or doing something wrong or making an unhealthy alignment with somebody, right? But throughout like Jewish history, the Pharisees aren't bad. Like in a lot of ways, they're the ones that are keeping the tradition going. They're keeping the law present. They're maintaining things. And so I think it's interesting that Jesus says this generation or this brood, right? Which is like offspring, like of what came before, like this is a bad batch right? Like, it's not that all of Pharisees throughout history are bad. I think it it might be interesting to say, like, Jesus is pointing out that this group that that he's there for, this isn't a good one. Hmm. I think it was Lisa who introduced me to this last year, the year before, of 
of a scholar who talked about the um, the take that Jesus might have been a Pharisee himself, mm. um, and that that's a part of why there's harsh words spoken. It, like it's spoken from within the tribe, not from outside the yeah. tribe. Yeah. Um, and so, like one of the one of the things kind of internal to the text that can be used to defend that view is the fact that he was called a rabbi, a teacher. And that would have been a Pharisaical term. Like the Pharisees are the precursors to the rabbis. Mm. And so people would have called a Pharisee a rabbi. And so the fact that Jesus was called a rabbi might be an indicator that he was also seen as a Pharisee. Um, And how does that affect how we see both Jesus and what he's calling out if we think of him as inside the group versus outside the group? Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, and how does that relate to what you're saying right now? Well, I, you want do you want to go? No, go, it? please go. <laughs> I was gonna say that when I when I read that, I think for me it doesn't read so much as this this generation. It for me it points towards the fact that there has always been a generation, like there are vipers in every generation. Mm. Um that there's always gonna be something not well in any space. So like I, I mean, if I'm honest, like I, like I see that in even our, any religious context, put it in any religious context currently, and there are going to be people, there are really horrible pastors Mm -hmm. uh, who say and do horrible things. And they are certainly not the first generation. I don't think they'll be the last. And I don't know that it encompasses every single pastor. In fact, I know very good pastors. Um, so like, I don't think it's an all encompassing, like everyone, (laughs) everyone everywhere. And, but also naming that this is, it feels like it's not a, it's, I don't know. Like, I'm just, I'm a little bit curious about, is it a particular audience that's there? Is it, um, yeah. Is Jesus trying to do an all y'all or is it a. I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about it, but for me, when I think of that, it makes me feel like there's just more. There's vipers in every generation. Yeah. And it, but to me, it still has that feel of like, Jesus is calling out, you know, whether it's like a, like a a select group, but it seems like a group that has sway or that has power because he's definitely like he's not calling out people by name. He's calling out like those that are in a way in charge or that are influencing people. Right. Otherwise he's, you know, it, to me, it, it kind of resonates. Like if you have some, if you have like a bad board or a bad, you know, governing body and you're a part of the system, like you might say like, y'all are a brood of hype. Like you're all messed up. Like you're the ones in charge. You're the ones like helping navigate where we're going, setting, trajectory here and you've got us going down the wrong path and yeah there might be a history of people that have done that but now we have a plurality or we have a powerful group doing that and this is really dangerous mm-hmm. um and and i like that idea of jesus being on the inside of this and doing it as opposed to simply on the outside um especially as a pastor who has recently joined a very top down you know system the methodist system being on the inside of that and being like in the room when people are discussing policy changes and like why they think they i mean whoo that's an interesting space to sit in once in a while Mm -hmm. and very different from just you know getting told what the denomination's doing or what people are thinking um or or how or not being a part of one at all and just being able to do whatever you want calling yourself christian as if there's like this big governing body that called itself christian so yeah, it is a different it is a different thing to think of Jesus on the inside. Well, and I think it's helpful to think about the intention of the Pharisees and and as a part of the context for all of this. Even even as you're talking about like being on the inside of polity discussions and policy discussions in the um in the in a big denomination, like often people see something down the road from that without seeing the intention of the leaders who are doing things. So mm-hmm. The Pharisees have an intention during a time when the world is under a Greco-Roman rule 
And it is hard for people to get to the temple. It is hard for people to, like the the taxes are high, like the temple system is a little bit fraught. And the fair, and the, the priests inside the temple system seem to be uh, more connected to the power structure of Rome as a part of being able to expand the temple. And so the Pharisees in, in part are like a reaction to the priests. And it's a reaction that is allowing everyday people to have access to God through a different way of having access to God. Like they are really, not only would I say they're precursors to rabbis, I think they're precursors to pastors. Mm. It's the people in your neighborhood who said, you know what, instead of always feeling like you have to go to the temple, how about we go to the synagogue that's in your neighborhood and we'll unroll the scrolls and we'll talk together about what we see inside the scrolls and you can have access to God right now both through reading and studying the scrolls and through living according to a standard of righteousness. And and there's a way that the desire of that, the intention of that is to to Mm -hmm. build a faithful people um, in a different way than the priests are seeing themselves having a role of building a faithful people. Um, and you often like we, the, another thing we do as Christians is we clump Pharisees and priests together, but they were actually right. often opposed to one another because they had this mm-hmm. very different approach to what God was looking for, how to have access to God, how to, how to be faithful was different amongst these two groups. And in that, then I think a little bit before this, in the way Matthew's writing his gospel, there's this conversation about the Sabbath that Jesus is having with the Pharisees and that as a part of this model of let's study and live by the law and we'll give everybody access to it so that they can study and live by it. There's a guarding of it. And there's a, there's a do this, don't do that guarding of what they're handing over to the people that is very much guarding Sabbath practice, which isn't bad. That's exactly what the Torah says to do. (laughs) The intention Mm -hmm. of that is good, but as a part of that guarding of the Sabbath, they test Jesus and they put someone with a withered hand in front of Jesus on the Sabbath to test whether he would heal them on the Sabbath. And he does, and they get mad about it because in their mind, guarding the Sabbath means not healing. And Jesus pushes and says, yeah, but if you had an ox that fell into the ditch, wouldn't you save that ox? Like you're, you're being hypocritical. Like you, you're, you're, you're missing the forest through the trees of what Sabbath is. And he's pushing on that. And then in this passage, the brood of vipers is in the context of, you know, a tree by its fruit. And so that feels very related to me of what is the fruit of the way you're guarding the Sabbath? If the fruit is that you're refusing to heal someone who needs healing, that's not good fruit. Mm-hmm. Your intention might be good, but it's not growing what you think it's growing. Um, and what is he calling out there in this group of people who might be well-intentioned to guard something, but the fruit of it is not good and they're not seeing the fruit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's interesting, I find interesting at least, is that in the in earlier Matthew, John uses the same language and John is using mm-hmm. it at the river, also speaking to Pharisees and Sadducees. Um, which is interesting. Like, I think it's interesting that they're using same language, which means that it's not as it's like this, this is a thing that people say, <laughs> obviously. Um, and what I like, but I'm curious. Cause like John ha- talks about bear fruit worthy of repentance. And I was like, Oh, what is that? Like, mm. what is that? Fruit? Like that feels different than like good fruit. Like it, there is something mm. about the good fruit there, but like, what is fruit worthy of repentance? Mm-hmm. And the similar thing of there's the language of vipers is coming up in the same breath as language about what's the fruit. So I think that also helps us see vipers potentially in a different context for why it's it's not just name calling. There's something about vipers that is tied to the idea of what the fruit is that Jesus seems to be using intentionally here in the language. Um, And so I think there's a couple possibilities there. One is um, something I read that I think, J- Jason, I think you mentioned doing a sermon on this with Vipers, didn't you? Uh, I I was studying New Testament and this passage came up and I read an article possibly about what you're about to say. <laughs> well, <laughs> I have no idea what you're about to say. So, <laughs> well, so that, that um, Vipers eat their mother. Yes. Um, that was from a, a class I was taking and I read that research paper and I pointed out to the professor. Like mm-hmm. seriously, seriously, I that is in the annotated New Testament by Amy Jill Levine, and so I trust that source implicitly. <laughs> um, that it says, um, 
Yes, that that's a part that's a part of thinking about vipers is that they are they eat their mother after they're born. So that's one curiosity that's a part of this. That's a very so, particular snake then. <laughs> like we're not just yeah. talking snake. <laughs> right. <laughs> which Jesus didn't use the word snake, which is which makes that right. really interesting and significant. And the word is echidna. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it's super funny. Like sometimes like you just have there are certain things that give you an image. Like this gives me an image, but the image I've had so far is nothing to do with what we're talking about. <laughs> like this it's like this pit of snakes. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I don't think that that's yeah. Anyways, go on about Viper. What is what is a Viper? Well, so I've got another thing to throw out and they might be connected. So I was I was looking at this before we hopped on here today that the Greek word is echidna, which is a female noun. And um, what I was thinking about was something that, um, that, uh, Pete ends has a podcast called Bible for normal people that I think we've probably talked about on here a lot. We, it's, we will, recommend it to people who are trying to do scholarly work. That's a little different. So I credit, I credit that podcast and scholar with helping me think about how embedded in Greco Roman culture Jesus is and how little Christians have really dove into what is, what would a Greco Roman audience hear? Because Plato, like things have existed for a really long time. Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey 750 years before Jesus was born. Plato, Aristotle, they were 300, 200 years before Jesus was born. This is like an embedded, the way everybody thinks culture. And and for those that might not understand why that's so important is that not only was Israel under the rule of Rome, but Alexander the Great, when he came in centuries before this, His goal was to make all of the known world as Greek as possible to the point where people in Israel were arguing over what language they should speak. Should they continue to be like focused on Aramaic and Hebrew or should they just go ahead and give in and become more like, should they speak Greek and should they read Greek? And this is where we get the Septuagint, which is the Greek copy of the Old Testament. And that becomes a favored version of the Hebrew scriptures. And so there's this internal dialogue within the Jewish people about like how Jewish are we anymore in a way. And so for, so Jesus would be very tapped into this whole dialogue and the emphasis on the Greco Roman culture at the time. Sorry, Steph, I didn't mean to jump in, but I think that the the longevity of the history here is so important. Yes. Well, and even the fact that the new Testament is written in Greek because people are, that's what they're speaking in the Roman world is Greek because it was the Romans took over the Greek empire and everybody's speaking in Greek. Everybody's embedded in this Greek culture. And that that's important to, for us to ask, is Jesus speaking to the Greekness of his culture? Is Jesus speaking to the Hebrewness of his culture? Is Jesus speaking to both when he's speaking uh, and to wonder and to ask questions about that? Right. So if we, if we hone in on the possibility of the Greek culture as a part of this, Echidna is a Greek God. It's a she-viper, and she is a Greek god who is considered the mother of monsters. She is the one who gives birth to Hydra. She's the one who gives birth to the dogs that guard Hades. And so in this conversation about what is the fruit, to compare the Pharisees to the Greek god that is the mother of monsters, like what are you giving birth to? Are you giving birth to the dogs that guard Hades? Are you giving birth to um, Hydra? Hydra's mother was Echidna feels potentially a part of this as well. Like what, what is, what is coming from you and is it good? Um, mm-hmm. That, that triggered a thought. Lisa's got a deep thought looking. I want to know what you're thinking in response well, to that. Well, it changes the, it changes the question for me when it, two things, <laughs> changes the question. Um, like, what are you giving birth to? That, that feels like a helpful question for me. And ain't it always something that you gotta have a woman doing this? Like, can it, like, can it not be, <laughs> I don't know. Like, God, I just, sometimes the way that women get portrayed across time is just a lot. And of course it's the, mo- is there a father of monsters out of curiosity? <laughs> Probably that's going to take it. That's going to take a scholar uh, on different. Gods that I that is more than the Google searching I did. <laughs> just, just thought. <laughs> I mean, there's a way of seeing it. Actually, I mean, there's a way of flipping what you just said. Is like, 
um, there are powerful women in the Greek culture. It's not all bad. I mean, there there isn't there is a there's a way of seeing this as almost affirming, even though it's not affirming of women to say like you can be powerful and give birth to power. And the fact that she's credited with giving birth to powerful enemies of Zeus is still power. Yeah. Um, just the way that it's a goddess of war, right? There's there's so that I don't know. That's that's all I got for you is that it's maybe not all negative, even though it feels all negative. <laughs> Hmm. And um, it's negative. <laughs> yeah. But I but I do, I mean, that's that's what it had me thinking about when I was looking at this this morning is like thinking about what fruit is being born on your tree and what is your generation giving birth to feels very connected to me if I connect it to that Greek god where she's the mother of monsters to say, are you are you giving birth birth to the kind of power? that does good or the kind of power that doesn't do good. Yeah. And I think one of the other, I don't know if this is a critique, but maybe more of an observation is we often want to make things as easy as possible for ourselves. Like we want it to be this or this, you know, dual dualism is like, is really, easy for our brains. Mm -hmm. Is it right or is it wrong? Is you know, do I go left or do I go right? And I think a lot of times that's one of the beauties but also one of the challenges of Greek thought is that there's often a dualism placed before people. And I wonder if that's being critiqued a little bit like you're heading down this path where you're forcing people to obey a law and they're not asked to think they're just asked to obey. They're not asked to consider. They're not asked to ponder. They're not asked to wrestle. They're not asked to evolve. They're just told to obey. And that's not how we actually do things. That's not nuanced. That's not thoughtful. That's not human. Like, and so I wonder if there's a critique of this way of being a Pharisee, this way of, you know, forcing people into a very, you know, 610 odd rules way of being Jewish that is not what the law intended. And it's not what, you know, it's not how God set it up. Um, it's the way that humans have interpreted what God wanted. And that's, and Jesus is there to correct that and say, come on, let's get after the spirit of this thing. Let's not live by the letter of this thing. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about, as you say that, like ways I've been challenged recently to rethink some of the things that you just said about Pharisees and whether that changes how I interpret this. So one of the ways I've been challenged recently is to realize that it's actually not that big of a deal to follow 600 laws and that we do that all the time. Um, unconsciously, like it's not hard to like, we don't have to think about the speed limit. Now we might, we might still break the speed limit, but it's there. No one has to remind us it's there and how many laws and we're not murdering most of us. Um, and that law is there, but we're not having to try to follow that law that I've heard comparisons of like, actually, we all probably follow more than 600 laws a day, easy in the U S and that we don't think about it and it's not hard. And that's and that whether or not the Pharisees actually were giving people something hard to do um, is is one of the challenges I've heard. Like, do you think do we think about it any differently if we think about it as being actually not necessarily that hard? Like, there were guardrails here, but a lot of them are guardrails that aren't hard to follow. Um, and actually, that's one of the critiques. One of the reasons I heard that is because the the priests thought the Pharisees were making it too easy on people. That's that was it. That was something I heard about why they were in con conflict with each other. And I, that was new to me. Um, and I'm still, I don't know what it, the implications of that are, but that was, that was new in the Amy Jill Levine um, talk that I heard a couple weeks ago. Um, so that's a question I hold. And the other question I hold is like in thinking about them gathering around the scrolls, that there was an encouragement to talk about it. I'm not sure if it's as black and white as I always thought it was. And I don't know how that affects how I see the Pharisees and what Jesus is saying here if it's not that way. Um, like, what were they doing wrong if it wasn't black and white thinking? Um, 
So I just want to open us up to like, if that's not what it is, what is it? It could be what it is, especially it could be a a particular group. As we're talking about a group, it could be a group of Pharisees that were being very black and white and very rigid in their thinking Mm -hmm. about those rules. Absolutely. And what if it's something else? I just want to put like, what if it's, I don't know what it would be exactly. That's why I'm posing it as a question. If it's not that, what might it be? I think that takes me back to that idea that you first mentioned about the vipers eating their mother because the article I read a long time ago. And so I don't remember every detail of it was making the, the case that what Jesus was critiquing was they weren't respecting or the, the Pharisees that Jesus was confronting in this moment were not respecting the tradition or they weren't respecting their heritage because they were eating the generation that came before them. And they were claiming to have the power now. And they were, yeah, not honoring what came before. Um, which which seems ironic because we tend to frame Jesus as someone who is doing something brand new. But that's but that's actually not what Jesus and, and or the New Testament authors are claiming. And they are saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, not rewriting the law. Mm-hmm. And so so for Jesus to come along and say, you're a brood of vipers, could be like, hey, you're you're claiming to to defend the law, but you're not actually. Like you're mm-hmm. actually doing something very different. And you're you're eating everything that came before you. And that's not healthy for what we're trying to do here. Mm-hmm. Well, and what's interesting, the two ideas of vipers that we've now posed are both about like, what, how are you honoring or not honoring what came before you? And what are you giving birth to? And that viper right. might actually have the ability to hold both in hold an interesting both, yeah. way of like, how do you see your role in the context of history? Mm-hmm. How are you, how do you see yourself in the context of what came before and what's coming after? And are you seeing yourself clearly? Are you seeing where you came from and where it's all going and whether it's good and that it's not just about your intentions, it's about what's actually happening. <laughs> it's about how people are actually acting out what you're giving them. Well, and the conversation right before this with a group of Pharisees is about like kingdoms being divided against one another. And where is this power coming from? And when you're bringing up kingdom language, you're not just bringing up like, hey, how are we doing in this moment? Like, you're talking about like longevity of where power lies, how it's going to go forward. You know, so you're, you're, you're talking generationally. You're talking about something much bigger than the moment that you're in. And so, so yeah, I love that you're nuancing it, Steph, where we're saying, Okay, how are we respecting the past while also thinking about the future? Because that's that's kingdom stuff. That's kingdom building type mm-hmm. stuff. One of the things that one of my theories of what happens when the church, quote unquote, is going in wrong directions or why why people are leaving evangelicalism. Like what is what is what is the problem? What what are we missing? What are what are people missing? How what's wrong with the leadership? Is I have this theory that for a long time we have been told to see ourselves as disciples if we are leaders in Christianity, when actually we should be seeing ourselves as Pharisees and listening to Jesus's words about the Pharisees. Because if we listen to the words about the disciples while leading in religious institutions, we might go in directions that like we might misinterpret something as being something it's not. And so this sense of, can we see ourselves, if we are leaders in a religious context, can we hear Jesus's words as words to us that Mm -hmm. when he's speaking to Pharisees, he's speaking to leaders and saying, Mm -hmm. be careful how you lead, look Mm -hmm. for what the fruit is, check in to see if you are being a viper. Like, have we read the new new Testament in ways that we put ourselves as recipients of these words and are willing to hear the hardness of them Mm -hmm. and to say, how am I doing at that? How am I doing at 
honoring what came before, looking at what's coming after. How am I doing it? Not just basing what's good on my intentions, but what's actually happening from my intentions. Mm -hmm. And how would things change if we, if we did hear these words, if we, if we wondered about them in that way. Kind of interesting in the, the passage points towards um, near the end it really points towards the words that they're using i mean there is conversation about the fruit and feels like a lot of action but there's this this end of um for by your words you'll be justified and by your words you'll be condemned and the every careless word and that careless got me curious because i was like what is it why careless what does that mean but it's like free from labor free from labor, lazy, shunning the labor, which one ought to perform. And then I was thinking, oh yeah, like some of like these, they are speakers, like these folks, the scribes, probably not so much. Maybe they do. Maybe the scribes speak a lot. I don't actually know, but they are people who speak and have a lot of religious authority. And so it feels like there's more, like as much as it's black and white, I don't think it's black as black and white as it appears to be. Mm-hmm. But I, I, it's just kind of interesting that, that. So then they're like, is it really a focus more so on vocation, because of the crew he's speaking to, or is this about like, or is this more broad? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's both. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It just feels very specific to then talk about the words to the words we speak. Yeah, like it starts mm. with fruit, but then moves to words. Well, that to me ties into some of the Hebrew context. So in Hebrew, the word for prophet is navi, which means one who brings. But the verb at the root of that is about bringing forth, like it's a word that would be used for bringing forth fruit. Um, and so there's a there's a Hebrew context of if you were a prophet, what are you bringing forth? What is the fruit of your words? That's how you measure whether someone is being a true prophet versus a false prophet is the, is what they're bringing forth. And so if that's the case, then is this about like what it is to be a speaker and a prophet, as you're saying? Because it is a lot about like even the generation of vipers talks about speaking. How can you being evil speak good things? And so is there something about what we're bringing forth with our words that's connected to perhaps that Navi idea in Hebrew and what is being, what is the fruit being brought forth from the words that we're speaking. I think what's a challenge to me about that in the modern context is like, okay, that that maybe even more so makes this about us because we speak, we have a podcast that we release to the world on a regular basis with our words. But how do we know the fruit of it? Like we release it out to the nether world of the internet and the podcast platforms. <laughs> we don't hear like, I mean, listening yeah. audience, if you ever want to write to us and tell us the fruit of our words, we'd be happy to hear them. <laughs> But Maybe. generally, we don't know, right? Typically like we that, want to hear the good fruit, but we'd also be open to the bad fruit. We'd be open to both. But like, but that's, I think that's really a common experience in the way that our modern world is structured is we don't always get to see the fruit. So then what are we as leaders to do? If we're speaking words or writing words in books, if we're doing things that are putting stuff out there, yeah. how do we evaluate the quality of what it's doing in the world when it is something that we just send out and it? goes and it feels so subjective Mm -hmm. um and it like some of that's just the world right now because the world is super divided everybody's against each other and words i don't know i i sometimes feel like i don't even know what people are saying anymore and or why they're saying it if it's true if it's not true i can try to look for fruit but I sometimes don't even know that fruit is so easy to discern what, like, what is good fruit and who is it good for? And I think, because I think some people would hear some of the words coming out of my mouth 
as not good fruit. Mm-hmm. They, I, I think actually there will be quite a few people who would really struggle with like the, the language of abolition and talking about different um, justice systems with that. And that does not sound to them. Um, and so like trying to figure out in that passage, like I, like I want it to be the thing that seems like so easy and be like, oh yeah, like I'm doing the thing that Jesus said. And in some ways it feels like it's just like this cautionary, like, holy crap, how do you navigate? Like doing the best with what you know and what you discover. Because my like, my words have changed over time too. <laughs> Which means like, I think the struggle in here is a little bit of like, if it's bad, it's bad. If it's good, it's good. Like you almost don't have control over it versus like the idea of like, well, fix it shift i i love i just want to highlight what you said of like doing what is it to do the best we can with what we know and what we discover because that feels like part of it you had a humility to that of like i might discover new things that would change my words i might be adaptable Mm -hmm. to so if we go back to the Mm -hmm. withered hand example and the Pharisees in that moment adapt their thinking to the moment and say, you know what? Generally, we would say, don't do any work on the Sabbath because generally that is a good guardrail for all of us. Yeah. But in this particular moment, with this particular person standing in front of us who needs something, I'm going to adapt my thinking. Mm-hmm. I'm going to adapt what I say. I'm going to adapt what I do and be yeah. flexible with something that isn't true in this moment. And I wonder if that that feels related that I that energy of what I both know and what I discover. I think it's that willingness to be critiqued that is so important. So in the passage before, Jesus goes into this whole thing, and we're not. I don't know. We we don't need to go down this path, but he's going to go into this whole thing about if you sin or if if you blaspheme, if you do the wrong thing, you will be forgiven. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that's unforgivable. If you blaspheme. Or if you go against the son of man, you can be forgiven. There's this whole posture of forgiveness. And what I hear in that is, are you critiquable? Like, if you make a mistake, are you open to making a mistake and being forgiven? And if you are, like, good. The problem is that so, not so many, there's a lot of people who are not open to a critique. There, there's, there's, a, there's a posture of, like having the right answer, being settled on the truth, and there's there's no openness to a counter argument, a different perspective, and and that's that's a very dangerous place to be, because now we're not learning, we're not growing, we're not open to another's experience. I think one of the terms that my wife taught me that she learned somewhere that has been just transformative is counterintuitive solidarity. Counterintuitive solidarity is this idea that if somebody has something different from me that is real for them, even if it goes against what I have experienced myself, I can still have solidarity with them. And here's the easiest example. My interactions as a white 42-year-old male in Minnesota, my interactions with the police are almost every single time very positive. If somebody who is different from me, racially, you know, from a different socioeconomic status, um, has a different interaction with the police, it could be very easy for me to say, well, that's just unique to you. That doesn't really, like, you probably did something. You probably triggered this. You probably said something you shouldn't have. You know, I could very easily just try to come up with all the excuses possible, as opposed to just hearing, no, this happens to me all the time because I'm black. And so the reality is I don't experience that, but I can have solidarity or I can choose to believe something that goes against everything that I've known to be true because your experience is different from mine. That we need to be open to difference and then allow that to inform us of how things actually are. Otherwise, we're just going to stay true to what we know and the systems that uphold who we are. And that's, I think, what's what's really dangerous. 
Did what I say make any sense? <laughs> yes, yeah, I'm just. I mean, <clears throat> Go ahead. Well, it made me think about um, kind of back to the um, some of the conversation around if Jesus is a Pharisee, and because it reminds me of like in my in my younger years, <laughs> I I like I know a lot of cops. Like I did different jobs that um, had me working with them differently. Um, my internship ride alongs all different stuff, friends. And I kind of have a different, um, I've had, I've had different exposure to them. So not just talking about like the experience of seeing them out doing their job or that um, being on the receiving end of interactions, but to see some of the personhood and mm -hmm. some of that personhood is not great. Um, I've seen a lot, which, it, but I seen it only because I was inside of it. Mm -hmm. for a minute and so there's something about like you can see things differently when you're on the inside um and it makes me think that like jesus is seeing something different that maybe the people aren't quite picking up on or and don't have the power to say anything about but like jesus being on the inside of it seeing it knowing it you can see the trajectory of what happens when that's the if you're saying that here then this is this has got tremendous wave of consequence behind it. Um, it makes me, it make, kind of like, it just, it's pulling me into like, I'm taking like both those, that lived experience and this passage and thinking about where we are in relation to the power mm -hmm. is it matters. And so then even how you frame it, how you talk about it and is different. How you say like what, how I talk to some of those friends is different and mm -hmm. there's compassion in it. It's not actually, as much as like this is spicy Jesus, I I wonder if there's actually an edge of compassion in there about mm -hmm. like, I know you have, I know there's good. You got it. That's what you got to produce. Mm -hmm. That's there. Because yeah. sometimes I read it like, oh, you're evil. If you're evil, you're evil, you're evil. And I'm like, that does not track with everything else that I know that Jesus has said. <laughs> like that doesn't, that doesn't make sense if everything is forgivable. But like this, like if you're evil, you're evil. That's that. Sorry. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how I sometimes read this passage that there's like a. It doesn't feel like the way forward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I, um, makes me think about tone of voice. Like, how is Jesus saying this? What, how do we hear what he's saying? Right. Um, right. And, I don't know. You know where I'm going with your counterintuitive solidarity comments, Jason, combined with what Lisa said is back to this, like, can we have that solidarity with the Pharisees here and to say, okay, if we put ourselves in their shoes, what would we hear? What would we see? What would that proximity offer to us? Yeah. Um, to, to be there and to see all the things the way Lisa's mm -hmm. naming that we would see all the things and all the complexity of all the things instead of just making them this group that Jesus doesn't like. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the other thing I was thinking in response to what, Jesus, what Lisa was saying was um, the word for evil. Here are the ideas of good and evil. I think we often think of, I don't know, when I think of good and evil, like man on the street interview kind of things, I feel like we tend to think of evil as like really, really bad. Like Hitler was evil. Um, like it's a word that's like, ah, let's not be evil. But like the the Greek word is um, poneros, which means evil, yes, but it means full of labors or annoyances or hardships. It means a bad nature or condition, like being diseased or um and so there's a there's a way it doesn't have to feel quite that harsh and can maybe even feel a little bit more relatable to like is is the source of this like a hard labor is it toil is it peril is it diseased is it like those are, are a little less blamey sounding and feeling um and also then feels in contrast to like, I think in the trajectory of the Bible, we see this idea of good having this 
this connection to life-giving. As we look at Genesis 1, especially this idea that goodness is about being life-giving and like having this trajectory of life, Mm -hmm. and that evil then is about stopping that trajectory of life or like cutting it short in some way. And so this same, it seems to maybe be here in Greek as well, that there's some sort of hardship that doesn't bring any good anything from it or, or disease that just breeds more disease that the sense of like, you know, are you, are you being um, a generation of vipers who are coming from that source, but thinking you can speak good things when you haven't dealt with that source that's there. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, are you still thinking? No, go ahead. Well, if I, if I insert that, then like, how can you speak good things when you are pressed or harassed by labors? Which then makes me think about like, if you're like overworked and stressed, you really don't come up with a lot of great things. <laughs> Or like you, um, I this this pull like now I'm now I'm just curious if there's ties to like uh, rest or like how much mm-hmm. they're, mm-hmm. um, I don't yeah to be pressed and harassed by labors makes me think that that's uh, interesting. Well, right, and that 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 really goes to verse thirty five. A good human out of the good treasure of their heart brings forth good things. And a stressed human out of the stresses and labors of their treasure brings forth stresses and labors and toil and hardship. Like that fits probably like when we think about when we're our best self and when we're not our best self. Well, and it's interesting because the language that you're you're nuancing by diving into this idea of good being life-giving or um, evil being stressful or labored um, or diseased even. Um, Two things. One, good is not saying we're never going to critique this. Like that's not the implication here. Because oftentimes, like good and evil, it's just like, well, one thing is good. We don't need to critique it because it's just purely good, and we don't have to question it. We don't have to examine it. We don't have to look at it. We just trust that it's good. And then evil is irredeemable, and it's you can't come back from that. But none of that that you explained is irredeemable. There's there's redeemableness in all of it. And Jesus even says at the top of the the what we read, verse 33, like, like make the tree good. Like, you know, it like if it's bad, we'll make it good. Like, and that's the whole idea of repentance. That's the whole idea of changing the way you think, right? Metanoia. Like, I mean, that's this the whole idea that Jesus is after is you're on the wrong trajectory. That one's headed towards evil. Um, or that one's headed towards destruction. That one's headed down the wrong path. It's diseased. It's labored. It's stressful. Like change the trajectory, head over here, get back on the path of life-giving. And then when you're on that path of life-giving, it's not that we don't measure it. It's not that we don't critique it. It's not that we don't look at it. The fruit of it should be good. The fruit of it should actually be something that's like helpful. It's life-giving. It tastes good. It's, it's refreshing. Um, it does something for us. Like we have to measure that because if we don't, it's not just like, well, apple trees are good and banana trees are bad, right? It's no, apple trees are good because the fruit actually nourishes us. Now I know a banana tree does too, but like the metaphor breaks down really fast here. <laughs> but the point is, is that you have to eat the fruit to know if the tree is actually good. Apple trees just aren't inherently good. So you got to measure it. You got to critique it. You got to taste it. You got to get involved with it. Um, and so in both instances, we're examining for the sake of figuring out how do we move towards the good again? Well, and and if we keep the gardening metaphors going, I keep thinking about the tomato plants at our um, in our garden, which tend to get these like black spots on them, um, and and that the it is a good plant that has the potential to bear good fruit, but it has to be nourished in the right way. And when it doesn't have enough calcium, it gets these spots and brings forth bad fruit. And so how is there that kind of thing inside of this analogy towards fruit and trees to say, like, you can't just like, I feel like, like, I just keep thinking about social media with this, like what's happening with your words, because we're so loud on social media. And but it, what we, it feels like we just keep critiquing each other's fruit instead of looking at the source, like to say, like, you, like looking at that tomato plant and shaming that tomato plant for having a bad tomato 
doesn't do anything. The only thing that helps is if that plant starts getting the right nourishment. Mm -hmm. It's not like critiquing the fruit does nothing. It's about like, and that Mm -hmm. that same thing happens with ourselves and each other. Like there's something about that sort of looking at the source in all of us in each other and in ourselves and like what source are things coming from and how do we make it a good source in a way that then helps the words, the fruit, the snakes, like be good, be life-giving on its, on the other side. Mm. Yeah. We do this a lot with people that are different from us politically. We, we just, we see the fruit and we just think the source is like terrible as opposed to saying like, you know, so I was sitting at a wrestling tournament this past weekend with my eight-year-old and behind me there was some nice gentlemen that were talking and we made they made some jokes with the little guys that were sitting around and then all of a sudden the conversation started going into this route of do you have your non-perishables you know stored up you know do you have your guns and your ammo because you know the civil war is coming and i was like whoa okay that conversation behind me is very different than the conversations that I normally have. And my instinct was to be like, because I don't think that, and because I do not have that posture, my instinct was to say, well, this is like, these guys are are nuts, or these this is ridiculous. But like, what they were experiencing, or what they were feeling was real the fear, the tension, like there's something that they are hearing that is causing this reaction. I can honor, I can have counterintuitive solidarity with that feeling of fear. I can sit there and say, I believe that you are scared. I believe that you think you need to be prepared for a coming civil war. I, I can, I can believe that. I can also believe it probably based on what you've been told. Like everything that you would tell me if I were to say, why do you think that? I would say, well, your reaction makes sense to me. The question that I would then have is, is what you've been told actually accurate, right? And now that's a whole political conversation that Searching the Sacred is not going to get into. But the point is, is that I can have that counterintuitive solidarity to not shame the person. To not say that that person is evil because they're not, they're not an evil person just because their choices and their media sources aren't the same as mine, or they don't result in the same posture that I have towards the world. But instead there's something to dive into. There's more conversation to have if we're willing to be patient enough to have it. Now I wasn't patient enough that day with my eight and a half year old black child. It was, Hey, let's go watch your buddy wrestle. And let's go over here. And that was fine. That was the choice I made for that day. I don't know this person. Didn't even know their name. Um, but my, my hope is that we can find ways to not shame people, but instead find ways to connect so that there's an opportunity for the you know tomato plant to get the calcium that it needs eventually. Um, I'm in a class right now that the first unit of it is really thinking about how we think and thinking about things like cognitive bias, cognitive dissonance. And like in that example, what I'm thinking about is we're going to assume in those moments that the other person's the one with the bad tree. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's how cognitive bias works. Um, we're going to assume that generation of vipers is not talking about us, but it's talking about them, that other guy. How do we get over our own biases to wonder about our own trees, our own fruit, our own hearts, our own words, and wrestle with these words of Jesus to us? about the ways that we're missing the mark in the way that we are talking and leading and doing things in the world. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
because I don't want to be called the generation of vipers. But maybe I am. Maybe I'm a part of that. Maybe I'm a part of something that I'm not willing to see. I don't want to be, I don't want Jesus to tell me my tree is bad, but maybe it is. Maybe it has been corrupted and I haven't been able to see it. And I need to hear the words to be able to see it, to be able to dig something up that's not good at the source so that out of that abundance, something better comes. I think I'd rather be told that my fruit sucks by Jesus <laughs> than to go on producing crap fruit. Mm. And it's kind of a, it's like that space of like, who is trustworthy to speak into your, like who sees behind the scenes, who, who knows the stuff that's happening that can then speak to, Hey, that's not the fruit. That's not the fruit we want to have. I know that's not the fruit you want. Something's happening here. Um, so it does kind of feel like it has to be the inside. Like it does have to be an inside person that's in, that's close enough to see the behind the scenes. That's not seeing a facade, a front. Yeah, that Jesus is doing this with the Pharisees. feels helpful i like i i think ultimately what jesus wants is something better not to like condemn i think then about what it is for us to have people in our lives who make these words come alive to us um who are willing to critique us who are where we're where we're able to then because it's still going to be hard on our own to hear Jesus's words as being for us. But do we have people in our lives who help us hear that these words are for us when they're for us? And are we willing to have that um, change of mind, that repentance that Jason talked about that also seems to be what John the Baptist was talking about is the fruit that leads to repentance um, when he's talking about the generation of vipers. Like, how can we, how can we hear? How can we shift? when it's our fruit that's bad. Oh, this is so hard. Because I think what's so hard to me is this, and Jesus does this for us, which is so beautiful because he's, he's, he's essentially saying, I'm not going to be able to be here to call out the brood of vipers when they pop up. So you need to be able to judge the fruit to find out if there's like some calcium needed to help to heal the plant. Right. It'd be so much easier if Jesus were just to walk up and be like, that fruits taste terrible. Like you're down the wrong path. Like it'd be so great to have that objective person to just name it for us. And we don't, we don't have that objective person to just walk up and say, this is bad fruit. Because even if, my wife says to me, your fruit is bad. My instinct, because of my cognitive bias, is to say, yeah, based on what? Like, mm -hmm. just because you know me better than anybody else in the world, just because you're around me more than anyone else in the world, doesn't mean that you know exactly what's right and wrong for me, or you know what uh, how I feel. And so there's like a level of, because we're in a subjective reality all the time, it gets really hard to receive the critique because it's not simply Jesus telling us. So what do you do in those moments when it's hard to receive the critique? I think that's where we need a Sabbath practice because we have to be able to slow down enough to think as opposed mm. to just react out of that stress and that labor. Because what's going to come out of that is definitely going to be bad fruit. Good word. Slowing down always helps. Even in those moments where like in the moment, even slowing down, like counting to five before responding to something that's making us reactive is almost like an in the moment Sabbath practice of like, right. hold on, receive yeah. first, take a minute. I, I'm caught, this is a bit of a different direction, but it, it's, I think it's the thing I'm going to leave this podcast with, 
which is like, what about the times when the fruit seems good, but the source was actually bad, (laughs) which feels a little different, but similar. Like I I keep thinking, so I'm thinking about Jean Vanier, Vanier, I think is how you say his name, who like trained Henry Nouwen. Like Henry Nouwen had all this fruit of like living in these communities of, of people with disabilities and like talking about God differently. But it turns out that like that tree was a bad tree. (laughs) Like it had a bunch of, like he was abusive to multiple people over the years and it came out and it harmed a lot of people when that information came out because they were surprised by it. And so like. Who was abusive? I don't know this story. Oh, oh, the, the, the person who formed, who, um, who actually was the one who formed the large communities that Henry now and then lived and worked in. He, he was not a good human. It turns out he wrote a, but he was inspirational. The fruit seemed good. So people, he wrote books, people had him on podcasts. Like it was, it was, everybody thought this guy was a hero. And in the last couple of years, it came out that like, he actually had been, uh, done some pretty bad things. And so that feels like it happens a lot as well, where we're surprised by news that comes out about our leaders because it seemed like the fruit was good, but it turns out something wasn't good. And like, how, do, what is that? It, that feels connected, but it feels hard. And I don't know, Lisa's got a thought about how it's connected or what we do with that. Well, I think it's, it's being very Like this is that slowdown of language that for me feels I think it's very, I'm super sensitive to it because of my work with folks who are incarcerated is this idea of like a person being bad. Mm, yes. It's hard for me. Like it, there's yeah. actually this conversation of like, they've done things that are not good. They've done bad things. Mm-hmm. They've made bad choices. Um, bad things have happened to them, but innately they're not bad. So there is this way that I, I, I don't, this is where it, like, it doesn't feel like it's binary. Um, when we think of fruit, I, I just don't know that it can be a binary <laughs> source. I feel like the source is like humanity has all kinds of complexities. The problem is, is that we have this expectation, like if you're good, you're good. And mm-hmm. we assume that every pastor, every church leader, they're good. And then we're so horrified when we find out like, oh, they did some bad stuff. Well. Yeah, because that there's not that direct correlation in the way that we've kind of been taught it. The idea that somebody is good and can make bad choices is actually very human. And we see mm-hmm. that all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's that question of like when you have somebody who has an affair or decides to like steal or theft or there's all kinds of things that like we're like, oh, how could they have done that? And the reality is like, if we, if we settled in just a little bit, we probably would see how this whole thing not make, doesn't make it good. doesn't make it right. But it certainly means that you can go, Oh, and recognize that that potential is in all of us. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. It feels like that, (laughs) like maybe the, I don't know. There's something in for me that I feel really like passionate about. Yeah, well, I think that I think that takes it to what I needed, Lisa, which is to really allow this passage to speak dynamically and moment to moment. To say a tree isn't all like this idea the entirety of, the, of a human, right? Like this fruit in this instance from this tree was bad, which means something about the tree is not going right here. But it doesn't mean the tree is all bad. <laughs> like there's something dynamic about it all to to have it be very ongoing um and not not binary and not inherent core stuff but more like hey mm-hmm. in this moment you're you're there's some bad fruit coming let's yeah. think about what you're nourishing yourself with today this week this month yeah right and and the idea that like bad nourishment isn't necessarily the fault of the person who's producing fruit there right. are like bad nourishment can come from horrific choices people have made. Right. Like when I look at the like the stories of folks that come that I encounter, a lot of them have really hard stories of being exposed to things. Like if you're exposed to drugs at 10 from your parents, wow, your fruit is gonna probably be off for a while. 
It well, it, it feels like a different version of what Jason was talking about with that story of someone in the stands is to say if if we had listened, if he had listened to all of those news stories or all of that, if he had the exposure that person had, he might be making similar choices. And I've heard you say that about people who are incarcerated. If we knew their, if we had experienced their stories, our choices might not be quite as different from them as we think they would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and how is that a part of the complexity and dynamic energy of this passage to say, okay, let's keep. Let's keep digging into this. Let's keep seeing our fruit. Let's keep seeing our trees. Let's keep wondering. It's the same tree. There's not two trees in this passage. It's not a good tree and an evil tree. It's make the tree good. So there's the tree. So you're not having good human trees and bad human trees. You have trees and they have a propensity to sometimes be in a good season and produce good food, fruit, and they can also have a propensity to become a bad tree and produce bad fruit. It's the same tree. The question is, is it a healthy tree or not? And and that's the complexity of being human. I like that. There's one tree. How do we keep making the tree good? This has been a 40 Orchards podcast. At 40 Orchards, our mission is to create circles for all people to wrestle through biblical text so that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. We search through the lens of sacred possibility, assuming there is more to be discovered, questioned, and applied as we listen for how God is still speaking. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40, that's 40orchards.org. Our opening music is by Less FM. Our closing music is by NCR Music Vibes. Additional music is by 3Music. Any references to books or other sources can be found in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for searching the sacred.